0: Well, hey, welcome. My name is Gavin. Uh, I'm going to serve as one of the pastors for City Light Church, and what a great joy it is to be together with you guys, be a part of this family. And uh, I would invite you, if you don't mind, open your Bibles or grab your phone, download a Bible, get there. We're going to go to 2 Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 2, and uh, we're going to do a kind of a survey of chapters 1 through 5 this morning. And uh, in so doing, I want to preach a sermon titled, False Finish Lines and the Messy Middle false finish lines, and the messy middle. I wonder if any of you guys have ever entertained the thought that calmer waters are just over that next hill. I'll never forget the early years and days of City Light Church. Uh, Shortly after the infamous Jimmy John's lunch where Chris and I sat down, And somehow throughout the course of the gargantuan sandwich that we were each eating, we had each dared each other to quit our jobs and to plant a new church. And somehow we had actually said, okay, I'll do it if you do it. Okay, mark, set, go. And we left that lunch, one, filled with faith and energy and excitement that the Lord might use us, and two, horrified, not sure what we had just committed ourselves to in that moment. And so in those first weeks and months of City Light, we just gathered together in Jack Aaron's living room and cried out to God. Some of it sounded like, oh Lord, help us. I don't know what we just did. And some of it sounded like praying for one another. And then our prayer started to shift to, Lord, would you do a great work in our generation in our city? We don't believe you're done here with the gospel advance, and and those were fun seasons um, because there was no budget or building or strategy. It was just a handful of families with as pure of hearts as we could find, just crying out to the Lord that He would do a good work. And as I look back on that season, I realize in hindsight, man, those were those were some of the sweetest moments as a church. Those were some of the coolest, best days. But I will confess to you that when I was in that season, my heart already started to long for the next season. See, as exciting as it was and as faith-filling and adventurous it was, it was also horrifying. It felt scary. It felt unsettled. It felt insecure. We didn't know what the next day would bring. And my heart started to look on the horizon for a finish line. And I, I started to tell myself Okay, I know that the church is a people, not a place, but when we get our first building, when we graduate out of a living room, yeah, 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 that's the finish line. That's where the, the calmer waters are right over that hill. As soon as we get a building, then my heart will be content. That's the finish line my heart is, is longing for. And then by God's grace, within just a few months, we had our first building. It was uh, at 40th and Nicholas Street. It was an abandoned Presbyterian church building, 107 years old at the time. And God gave it to us for next to nothing, cool, miraculous story. And I thought, finally, the finish line. Now my heart will be settled. These are the calmer waters. And I remember meeting with the closing officer and uh, our real estate agent. We, We did the closing in the building. And I was so excited, and I let those guys out of the building and walked back in, and they were gone. And it was amazing as I looked at that sanctuary that just like 20 minutes earlier, it just looked like opportunity. And now it just looked like a huge, hot mess. I thought, what have we done? What have we done? Buyers remorse? Anyone No, Has that ever happened? And I'm just seeing like the plaster that is falling off the ceiling, thinking like I, I, we have to figure out a way to fix that now. This is a, a real thing, and the, the water coming in from the roof, and, and the mold and asbestos that just um, um, populated the basement just didn't look as appealing for the city light kids ministry to get launched in anymore. And my heart began to panic, and I realized okay, there's a new finish line, but but that's the real one. We just need to get the building done. We've got about a five month window, and then once the building is done, then the calmer waters are right over that finish line. And so, that was a super fun season of the church. We'd gather every Saturday morning for work days. And Chris and I and some volunteers would take turns picking up donuts. We'd meet at 7 a.m. and everyone would bring their tools and we'd get supplies donated and we would work. Linda, you were there. Sometimes we would work until the sun went down, 7 a.m. till it got dark and we were blistered and tired and we would go home. We'd show up the next morning, we'd do breakfast together and we would, I would teach through the core values and, and just open the scripture. And there might be 50 of us in the room and there'd be scaffolding next to the pulpit and there would be plaster coming down. And and I'll never forget one morning as I'm teaching, all of a sudden the, the congregation started to scream almost in unison. It was like, ah! Ah! I thought, what in the world? And and some lady was running up and down the aisle screaming. And some guy would jump down on the floor and started crying out. And I thought, why well, I don't I don't know how charismatic we are in our expression yet, but when the Holy Ghost comes, I mean he comes, so I must be preaching good. So they're screaming and running and I'm like, I like this. And then I saw the bat that was doing circles in the sanctuary and, and the rhythmic pattern was the loop of the bat and go what? And that's a true story, y'all. Mid-sermon, I got really good at preaching in a distracted environment. A couple of weeks later, one of the 107-year-old uh, 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 pews literally collapsed in the middle of my sermon. And uh, I'm not going to mention the, the, anything about the people sitting in it, but you can imagine they felt very insecure as the whole thing went right in the middle of the gathering. And, and as I look back, I think, man, that was some of the most fun years of City Light Church. It just was this small team in Midtown. It's like us versus the devil, you know, just, just we're going for it and God's using it. We're grinding, we're, we're, we're binding together. And yet in that season, my heart was already what? Longing for the next season. I thought, man, this, this just feels crazy. This is crazy. I remember every Sunday morning I would go in and I would print off my sermon notes on my printer that only worked on one side and not the other, so you kind of had to guess what the other half said. The toner was running out, but there was no money, so you just go with it. And then I would type the announcements, and then I would print those, and then I'd go over to the cutter and I'd cut them in half, and then I'd take them up and I'd turn on the lights in the sanctuary and turn on the heat and unlock the doors, and I'd preach every week because Chris, the, the swearing from the pulpit thing hadn't got itself worked out yet, so we had to work them in slow. Sanctification takes time. It got there by the grace of God. Praise God. I loved it. But at the time, it was just, you know, I'm probably nine out of ten. And I remember thinking, man, as soon as the building's done, as, as, soon, as, as soon as we don't have to do three gatherings, as soon as I don't have to preach and do the programs, and, and I remember as the, the, the building did get done finally, I thought, this is the finish line. This is the finish line. Finally, the building is like not going to get condemned by the city and, and, and I don't have to do the programs anymore. We were able to, to, to hire you know, some, a little bit of help and, and do that. And then we started doing one gathering, two gatherings, three gatherings. And then I broke my foot. And then my wife had a baby. And it was a hot mess. And, and I thought, oh, there's got to be another finish line. Oh, once we get to the new building the Omar building, our Midtown gathering, then it will be easy. We can put a thousand chairs out there. We can do one gathering. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the, that's the finish line. If I can just hang on till that finish line, then everything is going to be calm waters right there. Right now, I'm just in the messy middle, but, but there's the calmer waters. And, and we got into the Omar. And guess how many weeks we had one gathering? One week. It literally was one Sunday morning. And now we're almost six years into this thing, and now we have four gatherings at two locations in the church plants, and and I I will confess to you, your pastor is no more competent or qualified or calm than he was in those early days. It it feels like another season of the messy middle, and and nothing seems simpler than those first days when we were just in a room praying together. And as it turns out, every finish line that I had set my heart on was actually a false finish line. Every one was the starting line to a new season of the messy middle. And I can't help but wonder now, of, of every finish line that I've set my eyes on, if that too isn't but a false finish line and just another starting line to a new season of the messy middle. I wonder if you guys can relate to me in any way of your life. Isn't it true that we at times have put our eyes on some false finish line? As soon as I got through with this work project, as soon as we can get married and we're not engaged anymore, as soon as I get through med school, as soon as I get the master's degree done, as soon as the kids get out of house, then that's the calmer waters. It's right over the next hill. Calmer waters are just ahead. And yet we're going to look at a sermon or a story this morning in the life of David as he crosses what appears to be, to his eyes, a finish line. Remember back in 1 Samuel 16, uh, the prophet Samuel had anointed David king over Israel. We don't know his exact age, but we know from biblical context he was between 8 and 15, most likely closer to the age 15. Since that time, when God told him he was going to be king, 15 years have elapsed in those next 15 chapters that brings us up to today's text. And so for 15 years, he's been hanging on to the promise that God is going to give him the throne, that he's going to be the king in Israel. And yet those 15 years have been an insane season of the messy middle. Just think back to some of the stories that we've listened to. He's been on the run. King Saul has wanted to chuck spears at his head and kill him, pin him to the wall. He's worked as a mercenary fighter to the enemy nation of the Philistines and fought their battles for them. Um, he has had a very long, difficult, turbulent 15 years of waiting. And it looks like he's finally made it to the finish line. The very last chapter of 1 Samuel gives the account of King Saul dying. The first chapter of 2 Samuel, news gets to David that, David, that Saul has died. And so it looks to David like, finally. After 15 years, surely I have arrived at the finish line. I will sit on the throne. The calm waters are just over this next hill. But as we're going to look at the first five chapters, the second same of this morning, we're going to see that for David, the waters over that next hill are anything but calm. In fact, the season on the horizon is no less turbulent than the one in the rear view mirror. And as we track through this story, I think God wants to teach us a few truths about false finish lines and learning to live well in the season of the messy middle. In fact, as we get into our text, what I wanna do is is divide our time, divide our text into three truths that we learn about the messy middle from the life of David. And I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles and to take notes or entertain me and just pretend like you're taking notes. And then then I'll feel more confident as you tweet and check Facebook and the weather app. Uh, But here's the first thing you can either write down or pretend to write down. The first truth about the messy middle is that Life is made up of the messy middle. Life is made up of the messy middle. Remember, we're in chapter two and verse one. The context is this, Uh, chapter one, David has just learned that Saul and Jonathan are dead. He mourns and laments their death in chapter one, and now it is time for his crowning. Chapter two, he's arrived. Here's the finish line. Look with me in verse one. It says, after this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went there and his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Now, real quick, Men, before you get any ideas, God forbids uh, multiple wives, okay? So this is not like a new life verse. This is not, you cannot quote this and say, honey, I've got a good idea. No, we're going to see God condemns this in a later verse. We'll get back to it. Verse 3. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah, Okay, so, so far, things are looking good. Saul is dead. God told him to go into Hebron, so he goes. They crown him king, and he is king over the, nation, or over the tribe of Judah. Judah was one of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. It is a region within a region, and uh, this would be like if the nation of Israel were the state of Nebraska— Uh, King David has just become the governor of everything south of I-80, okay? So it it appears that he's going on his crowning campaign. He's going to go around to all the cities, and uh, there was no Twitter or email or or newspapers. Word will get out. He is the king. Things are going to go well. Everyone else is going to catch on, or so it looks. But then verse 8 happens. Verse 8. It says, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, the late Saul, the late king, took ish Sheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. ish Sheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was the king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months, and all of a sudden things are no longer going so well for King David. One of Saul's generals found one of Saul's remaining biological sons. Surprise, there's still a man in line for the throne. He props him up to be leader, most likely as a political ploy to keep himself empowered as the general of Saul's army. And what looked like it was going to be a smooth finish line for David no longer looks so. In fact, this political stunt of Abner sets off a period of seven and a half years of chaos, political unrest, and civil war. In the nation of Israel, what looked to David like a finish line became an even longer season of the messy middle. And so, what we see in chapters two through the end of chapters four is is a picture of the seven and a half year window. Of all the drama and chaos that ensues. And one of the challenges as a preacher of uh, preaching through Old Testament narrative is that it's long, right? The plot arc might go on for several chapters. And so uh, it's one, it's why we encourage you to read through this narrative on your own throughout the week. Uh, but for the sake of preaching, let me just highlight. Let me just give you the Cliff's Note. This is how Chris got through college. Let me give you the Cliff's Note version of what the plot says in chapters two through four. Here's a little glimpse into David's messy middle. First, 12 dudes from Israel and 12 dudes from Judah, same country, stab each other at the same time. This sets off a civil war in Israel. David's men clean house in the first battle, hashtag winning. Next verse, Joab's brother, Asahel, Joab was David's army general and also his nephew, chases down Abner on foot. Abner was Saul's army general, two two generals. Abner tells him to bug off. He doesn't, so Abner stabs him with the butt end of a spear and it runs out his back hashtag not positive and encouraging, hashtag not safe for the whole family, y'all. Next verse, Joab and Abner continue to wage war. David and Joab only lose 19 men in this battle. Abner loses 360, hashtag taking names. Four verses later, Ishbosheth, the king in Israel, accuses Abner, his general, of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines, his late father's concubines. Abner is so upset that he makes a covenant with David to unite the kingdom under him. Hashtag General Hospital. Hashtag Days of Our Lives. You can't make this stuff up. Verse 26, Joab doesn't like David's covenant with Abner, so he goes off and he kills him. Hashtag Revenge Murder for his brother. Chapter 4 and one Ishbosheth is then assassinated in his sleep and decapitated by two of his own army captains and then brings the head to David. Hashtag Jack Bauer style. 24 anyone? No, you're Christians. You don't watch that. I didn't watch it. Someone told me. It's good, isn't it? It's good. Jay's with me. Verse 12 David has the two men who killed Ishbosheth executed and has their hands and feet cut off and hung by a pool at Hebron. Hashtag Halloween decorations. I don't know what his point was but as you can see from this flyover this is not exactly the peaceful transfer of power that George Washington talked about in his famous speech remember he said the greatest test of our American experiment this democracy will not be if he can come into the presidency peacefully but it will be the second president will there be a peaceful transfer of power well it went well in the United States but it did not go well in the nation of Israel The handing of the leadership baton between the first king of Israel and the second king of Israel was anything but peaceful. And I want you to think about David. Put yourself in his shoes. Since you were 15 years old, acne, cracking voice, all your insecurity, God tells you you're going to be king. You're all excited. You're waiting for this moment. You've been waiting in the wilderness. You've had a neurotic king trying to kill you. You've grown up. You're now a man. You've fought battles. You have scars on your hand. Finally, you're 30 and you're starting to get the gray in your beard right here and it's starting to get a little thinner right here. And and you're a man. You're thinking, finally the moment. I didn't think I could hold out till I was 30, but I made it. And you get to that finish line and it's anything but a finish line. If anything, the season of the messy middle only intensifies to the next level until he finally gets to the throne in chapter 5 and verse 3. And even then, spoiler alert, I don't want to give away the rest of the series, but when David finally gets to the throne, do things finally settle down for this man? They get anything but settle. It's more drama, chaos, and a fresh season of the messy middle for this man. So this is the Lord's anointed, the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel. Even he never graduates in this life from the perpetual cycle of the messy middle. And the first observation I want to make for us, City Light friends, family, is is that life is just made up of the messy middle. I know this might not sound like great news, the most encouraging sermon you've ever heard, but I need to shoot you straight that it is very well possible that the finish line that you are holding out for right now is actually just the starting line of a new season of The Messy Middle. If I could just pick on the college students for just a moment, everyone thinks we're busy when we're in college. Isn't that right? I know you're busy. You got school. You got papers. You got work. You got Fortnite. You got Netflix to binge on. You got intramural sports. You got to be on Facebook till 3 a.m. I get it. You're busy. You're stressed out. Everyone who's laughing right now graduated college and entered the rest of their life, and they know you were not busy at all. You've never had it so good. So enjoy what you have in this moment, because what you're looking forward to is really a false finish line. And the reality is we never quit telling ourselves those lies, because then it becomes, well... Well, once we, uh, once we finally get married, then it will be nothing but romantic bliss. You know, then it's smooth sailing. That's easy. Engagement's hard. But once, once we get married, yeah, 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 sorry, engaged couples. Yeah, once we get there, then it's, then it's going to be a piece of cake, and, 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 and it's a false finish line. And they say, well, once, once we finally have kids, then we will feel settled and our family established. Marriage will get easier then. I mean, it's just really a <laughs> piece of cake after kids. And then it becomes, well, well, when the kids finally sleep through the night, then we can just be sane, and when the kids are finally out of diapers, you know, then, yeah, 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 that's the, that's the finish line. Just just hold on, honey, as soon as they're out of diapers, that's the calmer waters are over that hill, and then it's once soccer season's over, yeah, yeah, then, then life will all be good, and then it's, okay, once the kids finally get out of the house, that's the finish line. Calmer waters are right over that hill, and then it's, well, once the kids finally move out the second time, <laughs> that's, the, that's the finish line. Right over that hill, then things are going to be easier. And then it's, well, once I finally get the promotion and we get the new job, yeah, yeah, that's the finish line. Calmer waters, I can almost seem to ride over that next hill. Once we finally retire, then we can settle and have our priorities, and then, then we'll have calmer waters. Once we settle mom and dad's estate, it's just a busy season, but you got to shut it down and we gotta, we got to sell it off. But calmer waters are right, right over that hill. Once I finally get the Velcro shoes and that rascal scooter, And I trick it out with rims and some subwoofers in the back. Then, then, calmer, that's the finish line. And if we just keep holding our breath until we get to that finish line, we're going to miss out on where life really happens, which is in the midst of the messy middle. It's called life. And so I've just learned that I can either get flustered with my circumstances or I can adjust my expectations This is what it looks like to live in a fallen world. Kids get sick, work is hard, basements flood twice, money's tight, relationships are challenging. And so my hope needs to shift from just surviving this season and getting past this obstacle to realizing that God is graciously sustaining me and empowering me to navigate the messy middle as a husband and as a father and as a pastor and as a man of God. And that he has promised me rest, and I will get to that rest, but I may never fully experience that rest until he calls me home to glory. And so in this moment, rather than seeking rest, I will seek to be faithful to Jesus Christ who has me in the messy middle where he has me. I'll seek to be faithful. And I will find my rest in Jesus in the midst of my messy middle and not in some false finish line that I'm telling myself is going to be so much easier once I get there. And so let me just ask you, what if we all just adjusted our expectations and actually believe that we are living some of our best years right now? What if we actually started to fight for joy today in the midst of the messy middle? What if we truly believe that today is a gift of God and these challenges are real? They are not easy. And yet I'm going to believe that God is using me. He's empowering me. He's giving me grace to live life faithfully as a man or a woman of God in the midst of the messy middle. And I'm gonna trust him to sustain and provide for me and to be present with me and not look past this messy middle to some other false finish line on the horizon. And here's one reason why this is really important for us to understand. It's actually my second point, so write this down. Our character is formed in the midst of the messy middle. Our character is formed in the midst of the messy middle. How you and I respond to the messy middle is the very thing that is shaping us into the kind of person that we are becoming. The messy middle is the crucible of our sanctification. Let me show you this in David's life. We've already seen David's uh, character tests in some of 1 Samuel. We've seen him step up with courage to fight the giant. We've seen him not slay the enemy king in the awkward bathroom scene when he could have taken the throne by force. But let me just give you a glimpse into some of his character challenges in these four chapters, this seven-and-a-half-year chapter of the messy middle. Chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. David had the man who claimed to have Saul executed, Uh, who who claimed to have killed Saul, executed for murder. He refused to be complicit in Saul's death or to take the throne by force. Hashtag love your enemies. Next verse, David laments Saul's death. He laments it in Jonathan's death. He doesn't rejoice in the vacant throne. Hashtag not 2018 politics. 2, 1 through 4, David's first act after Saul's death is to listen to God for his instructions. Lord, where should I go? He doesn't presume that he's ready for the throne. He listens and obeys gods, hashtag, hashtag patience. 3, 31 through 34, David actually mourns Abner's death. He has compassion on his enemy, the one who usurped the throne from him, hashtag classy. And verse 4 and 12, David has Ishbosheth, the other kings, he has his assassinators executed for their murder. He again refuses to take the throne by force or be complicit in his murder. Now listen, David is not a perfect man. We're going to see that. You ever hear of Bathsheba, Uriah? There's some chapters coming that are not very glamorous for David's story. In fact, that's why we realize that he is not the ultimate king, but points us forward to the one perfect king that would come. But I do want you to see in this text that God used this season of the messy middle to prepare David, to shape his character for an incredibly important season that he had ahead for him. And I can't help but look back and say, man, in those seasons when I was grinding and Chris was grinding and there was no help and, and the, the future was uncertain, that the Lord was, was doing a good work of killing any idols in our heart that said things need to be perfect. I can see that Jesus was shaping our character that said, I'm going to have to actually choose my wife over Jesus' bride, the church, and my kids over his kids because that false finish line's not coming when, I, when I'm going to be able to come home and give my best. So that's going to have to be a decision. He was shaping my heart in that season to prepare us for seasons that were ahead. How many of us know that in that season of changing a diaper at 3 a.m., when that baby's screaming at decibels that literally can crack windows and you are sleep-deprived for months and you're going to sing that baby back to sleep, that Jesus Christ is teaching you a lesson on unconditional love that you cannot learn in a Sunday school classroom? How many of us know that when we were stuck in that job that we hated and we had cried out to God for years to deliver us from this boss that the Lord was teaching us integrity and how to do our work as unto the Lord and not as unto man? How many of us know that it's in the season of the messy middle that Jesus Christ is shaping our heart and our character? And yet the danger is, I think we tend to tell ourselves this lie that that once I get past this season of the messy middle, then I'll become the kind of person that God wants me to be. Once I get past this hard season, then I'm going to let Jesus reorganize my heart, but I just got to hang on tight and and I just got to get through this messy middle. I'll start pursuing my wife again when my kids get older and and I'm not so tired. I'll make time for a city group when we just get through soccer season. I'll visit grandpa when I'm done with the busy season at work. I'll quit this habit when I get the new job that isn't so stressful. I'll begin tithing when I start making more money. I'll, I'll do devotions with the kids when life just isn't so full. When I'm through with the messy middle, then I'll become the kind of person God wants me to be. But David's life shows us that the messy middle is the very place where God grows us. The messy middle is God's divine surgery table where he tears open our chest and rewires our heart to look more like him and his image to be the men and women that God wants us to be. It's in the season of the messy middle that God changes our character. And so I just want to ask you, what is it in your life that God is calling you into that you are putting off saying, I will get there when I'm done with the messy middle? Because God wants you to work through that in the messy middle. And if I could just press into maybe the younger folks, students, kiddos in the room, I think that when we're young, we can even tell ourselves that, forget the middle, I haven't even gotten to the middle yet, you know, I'm still like, the clock hasn't even started yet, you know. But I want to say, actually, you are in the messy middle. And those little obediences and disobediences that you're doing right now are actually shaping your heart and your mind and your will to shape you into the kind of person that you're going to be for the rest of your life. And so there's those moments of that, that little disobedience to mom and dad. I'm just going to cheat on a test. It's a little thing. No one knows what It's a little bit of inappropriate internet use. No one's looking. It's all going to be fine. In those moments, you are actually training your heart you are training your mind into shaping you. And so too, those little moments of integrity, when you choose to obey and no one else is looking, when you honor God in your heart, when there's an easy path that's wrong and you don't take it, when you stand up for someone that's getting bullied at school, when you start tithing off your birthday money, when it's still in cents and not even dollars yet, off your first income, God is shaping in you an integrity that he can use for the rest of his life, for the rest of your life. God is shaping you. And forming you and forging you in the midst of the messy middle. God shapes our character in the midst of the messy middle. I want to show you a third truth that we learn about the messy middle in David's life and in our text today. The third truth about the messy middle is this God's plan prevails through the messy middle. Imagine again that you're David, okay, you're living through the seven and a half year of the messy middle, you've already rated 15 years for the throne, and if you've ever read, the Psalms, you know a little bit of David's prayer journal, you know a little bit of what's going on in his head and his heart, and there are those moments when he's saying, Lord, have you forgotten about me? I mean, I believe your promises, I'm hanging on to them, but it was 15 years, and now I'm on year seven and a quarter. Honestly, Lord, have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken? Was your promise not true, or did you just forget about it? Are your ears deaf? Are you not listening? He had those moments, but as it turns out, he realizes after a decade, or after nearly a decade, that God's plan had never been compromised. In fact, after the death of Saul and Abner and Ishbosheth, after 15 years of the initial wait and seven and a half more years, 22 and a half years of waiting, after the false finish line, we finally get to Samuel chapter 5 and verses 1 through 3. What does it say? It says, Then, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. (sighs) Twenty-two and a half years I think we don't capture it when we just read it, because you can read it in about five minutes, but 22 and a half years he's waited for this moment. And finally, he can see that God's plan was never compromised. In the midst of the messy middle, it was never compromised. In fact, it was the messy middle that paved the way for his plan to come to pass. Through the political jockeying, through the coup attempts, assassination, civil war, and the waiting and the wondering, God's plan was unfolding City light, it turns out that the messy middle isn't happening randomly or unintentionally. It turns out God has never lost control. But even where we can't trace, he is still working and he is still good and his plan will prevail. David can finally see it when he gets to chapter 5 in hindsight, but only in hindsight. He can see that God never left him or forsook him. He can finally see that through the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, the sinful and the sanctified, the delightful and the the, the devastating. God was still at work. David could look back and see that God was with him. He was sustaining him. He was preparing him. He was empowering him. He was guiding him into his destiny the whole time. And now he knows it. Chapter 5 and 12, and David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. God's plan prevails through the messy middle. It's really hard to see it when you're in it, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to believe that God still knows what he's doing. But in Dave's story, David's story, and in redemptive history, we see that God is still good and God is still on the throne. And we're going to see in a few, over the next few weeks, that David's um, reign on the throne is far from perfect. Far from perfect. And yet he points us to a greater king, an ultimate king, who would come through David's bloodline, who also, just like David, would come from the little town of Bethlehem to sit on the throne. Some 1,000 years later, God's ultimate, final, and eternal Savior King would come. And talk about a messy middle. This man's life. You can't make sense of it. Born a scandalous birth to an unwed teenage mother in a highly religious Jewish environment. He grows up in relative obscurity, swinging a hammer with his old man, blue collar, in a small town. He starts his public ministry. Is it going to be grand? Is it going to be amazing? Are all the nations of the earth going to bow down? Is he going to be king? He spends about half of his time with poor people and crippled people healing and teaching. And he spends the other time, the other half of his ministry, um, going in and critiquing the hypocrisy and evil that had infiltrated the church at the time and wreaks all kinds of havoc and actually has a bounty put on his head. Then he's betrayed by a close friend, subjected to a bogus trial brought under false charges, and then the only innocent man to ever live is executed. And you and I have the benefit of history in the Bible, but just put yourself in that moment before you know the happy ending. You're thinking, what, what good can come from death? How can innocence being executed ever bring about good in the world? God's plan has been compromised. We thought this was the Savior. Surely it isn't. Talk about a messy middle. But through the messy middle, God's sovereign plan prevails. Because at the resurrection, God used the chaos and the mess of the cross of Jesus Christ to bring redemption and forgiveness to all of the world who would receive it. And God's true king, Jesus Christ, now sits on a throne. He is ruling, he is reigning, he is seeking, and he is saving, and he is coming back again. And on that last day, we, like David in chapter 5, will be able to look back in hindsight and say, all the, the untethered, disconnected, random, sad, catastrophic bits of human history in my own story, oh, God had not left me. God had not forsaken me. I couldn't see it in the moment, but through the messy middle, God was intentionally laying out his redemptive purpose. God's plan prevails through the messy middle. I want to end our time with just two final points of application. If it is true that God's plan prevails through the messy middle, number one, it means that we can have a profound sense of peace in the midst of a broader chaotic world that we live in. Even in our own cultural and political and social climate that we live in, we can know that it doesn't matter uh, who's in the Senate or in the House this November. doesn't matter who is or isn't on the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter who is or is in the White House. Our God is redeeming his purposes in the world. and And no matter how dark or bleak it might feel like things are or are getting, We don't have to just lament the downward spiral of the world around us. We can say, oh no, God has not forgotten. He is bringing about a remnant of his people on this earth. He is unfolding a beautiful plan. He is still on his throne and he cannot be stopped. And so one, it gives us confidence we can actually step up to the line and say, you know what, I'm gonna fight for justice and righteousness and truth. And I'm gonna be engaged in issues and I'm gonna step to the line because I know that even if I fail, God will not. And whether he uses me or someone else, his plan of bringing his kingdom on this earth will prevail. God cannot be stopped. And so too, knowing that God's plan prevails through the messy middle makes a whole lot of sense and should bring a whole lot of peace to you and me as we live in our own stories of the messy middle. In fact, I want to close by just speaking to some of you who are maybe in the middle of a messy middle season right now. Maybe you feel like David in 2 Samuel chapter three. You thought this season was gonna be easy. You thought you were in the messy middle and you got over to that next finish line and boy, did it turn out to be not exactly what you expected. And you're thinking, Lord, have you forgotten about me? Have you forsaken me? This is not what this season was supposed to be like. I don't know how to make it through this. This is messy. I don't see what you're doing. If I could just speak to you for one moment, I just simply wanna remind you That the promise of Romans 8, verse 28, is not a Christian cliche. It is not for bumper stickers. It is not for coffee mugs. That is a promise of a real God to you and to me. Which says that in all things, God is working together for the good of those who love him. And so if I could just encourage you, I know it's not easy, but even in the midst of that messy middle, you may not be able to connect all the dots, but you can claim God's promise that he is working together for your good. And I just want to encourage all of us, myself included, that are in that season, somewhere along the way of the messy middle, not to fix your eyes on another false finish line, but instead to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ in the midst of the messy middle, to know that he is your rest. He is your power. He is your peace. He is the calm that you long for. It's not out there somewhere. It's in here, Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit inside of you everything you long for is given to you in the person work of Jesus Christ and the indwelling presence of his spirit. So don't fix your eyes on a false finish line. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ right now. In fact, we're going to end our time, as we always do, by taking a meal, a meal that reminds us that the God of the messy middle is a God who, whose purposes prevail. Um, remember, Jesus Christ, um, what looked like death actually brought us life. In fact, it says on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and he, when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It says that in the same way, also after supper, he took the cup, and he gave it to them, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you take the bread and the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this morning, we're going to eat a family meal together, and it's a meal of Proclamation. That in the ultimate messy situation, God redeemed His purposes, and so too, I'm going to trust as one of God's children that in the midst of my own messy middle, God's plan is still prevailing. He is empowering me, He is with me, and on that last day I'm going to see his plans. that that funeral I never wanted to attend, God was with me, that chapter of my life that I never dreamt I'd have to go through. God didn't leave me. God was redeeming, He was using the good, the bad to bring about his ultimate purposes. I pray this time would be a time of personal ministry to you. I don't know your story. Some of you I do, many of you I don't, but I do know that we all have a season of the messy middle. Many of us are in it right now. So I pray that this meal would be more than just bread and juice, but a reminder of the blood in the body of Jesus Christ that was given out of love for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to the Lord's table. If you're not, this meal is not for you. Scripture warns us not to take it in an unworthy manner, but to examine our hearts. So if you love the Lord Jesus, if you've given him your sins, this meal is for you. If you're ready to do that, you are welcome to the Lord's table. Uh, If not, uh, we encourage you to stay in your seats. Additionally, there will be a team of prayer volunteers in the back. Uh, If you just need some prayer for a season of the messy middle, you just need more of God, more of grace. I would love to pray for you myself. I'll be back there. Uh, There's no ushers. We're all going to stand in just a moment and uh, come forward. They'll break the bread for you. You dip it in the juice, partake that way. Any food allergies in the back. And then would you just stand to your feet and we'll pray together. Jesus, there is no one like you. There is no one like you who can take death and redeem it and bring about life. God, I want to pray in particular for those who feel like they're in a heavy season of the messy middle. Um, that this word would encourage their hearts to know that the season might not be easy, but they serve a God who is all-powerful, who's gonna make sense of this someday. Give them extra grace and faith to trust you in the season, to fix their eyes not on some false finish line that promises them the the, uh, false hope of rest over that next hill, but that they would find their rest in you. I pray that even this this time, this meal would be a tangible reminder of that love. So Spirit of God, continue to stir in our hearts as we take communion, in Jesus' name.